Hi, I'm Sanaya Beckles-Canton. And I'm Anna Minsky. And this is Wake Up To What Matters from New York City. Good evening, everyone. We're here tonight for our next episode of Wake Up To What Matters. And tonight we will be talking about how do we have courageous conversations in public education. With the recent shooting of the young man, Jacob Blake, who's a 29-year-old African-American male who was shot in his back by a police officer with his, four, with his children in a car, and all the other issues that we see in society today around Black Lives Matter, talking about the shooting and the way we treat Black lives in America, um, it's important for us to think about how do we take that conversation in the classroom with our children? How do we help our children to process what they're seeing and understand what they're seeing and, and what to do with that information. And so tonight we will be having a conversation about Courageous Conversations, which is a training I attended uh, last year uh, with the Department of Education. Ironically, our executive superintendent for District 5, Marisol, invited CEC presidents to participate. And I thought it was a wonderful thing, very progressive, to give us an opportunity to be in the room, teachers, principals, superintendents, parents, to have a courageous conversation about race and how we can then take that work back to the classroom and working with the kids. And so tonight we're gonna to talk a little bit about that. We're gonna share some stories. This is one of many conversations we will start to dissect, to talk about, to figure out ways to better support our children and families as we think about how we hold our, our leaders accountable. And we'll talk a little bit about District District 5, which is uh, Central Harlem and West Harlem, where we are located. And so myself and Anna will be talking about our experience here with race and how that has moved forward. But tonight, we're going to talk about courageous conversations and how do public education do a better job at talking about these issues. So Anna, how are you tonight? I'm doing okay. These, you know, all of all of the things that you're talking about, I think, weigh heavily on us all the time. So it, it's always good to have an opportunity to talk it through and to to process all these feelings together. Um, I was thinking about, you know, going back to the the murder of George Floyd in June, how schools were still in session, and I didn't observe um, my kids' classes really talking about it or really engaging with what was going on in the world. Um, was that your experience as well? Or um, do you have experiences like that maybe uh, from past years with some of your kids who, who are older than my kids are now? Yeah, so of course. I, you know, as a mom of six African-American sons, I have, you know, the benefit of having a wide range of experiences because my kids range from 34 down to age seven. And so over the years, I think the complicated conversation about race and racial justice and how that plays out in our communities has always been a very hard issue and touchy subject to, to talk about, whether it's in our homes as families or whether it's in our school buildings or communities, right? Um, and so, yeah, I've had had different encounters with that. Like, I, you know, I remember years ago when Sean Bell was shot by police officers coming out of a nightclub, shot up his car or something, and they said the car was used as a, 
as a weapon or all this craziness. And um, I remember the night before his wedding, right? Right, the night before his wedding. um, My now 24-year-old was a middle schooler at a public school. And the night that it happened, you know, in my house, we watched news. My mother, who was always an advocate of social justice and a very radical person when it came to issues on race, you know, we had a conversation at home and it kind of spilled over in his classroom with him and a couple of his friends who were also young boys of color. And his, at the time, middle school teacher kind of shut the conversation down and wanted them to focus on doing another subject. And he, along with his friends, was just so riled up and um, upset about the situation that when he came home and told me what happened, I reached out to the teacher because I was really appalled, the fact that she wasn't going to let them talk about it or, or try to have a conversation. But what I learned from that conversation was it wasn't so much that this young white Caucasian woman did not want to have, want to, them to talk about it. It was that she was ill-equipped to have the conversation because a lot of the conversation was around race. And I can remember my son saying, well, why do the cops always want to shoot black people? Why do they keep killing us like this? And why don't somebody do something about it? And, you know, now well, who is his kids going to have? And, you know, he was asking very important questions. And because I live in a house and, and grew up in an environment where we had those tough conversations and we confronted those uncomfortable issues, he was very comfortable asking the questions because, you know, my mom or, or myself or people in my family, we, we had these long, you know, dr- debates about it. So what I realized is that our teachers are not equipped, whether they be black, white, or Latino or of any other race, because race is such a very uncomfortable issue. Um, the part I've always struggled with in, in watching my boys deal with it is that the victims become the villains, you know, because they don't, we don't know how to process or have the language to say this behavior is wrong and this is why it's wrong and this should be going on. But this is built on the history of a country using people of color as chattel property and slavery. You know, chattel slavery did not value the black life as a human being. They didn't even see you as a human being. So that mindset is unfortunately trenched in our society and it shows up in our classrooms. It shows up when we go to the grocery store, when we travel, whether we are wealthy or poor, you know, just the color of our skin becomes a major issue. And so I think, you know, when I think about the Department of Education and how, you know, I went to this Courageous Conversation um, workshop training, it was life-changing to be in a room with a group of educators who was very uncomfortable. But what I appreciated most was that they were willing to stay in the room. Yeah, can you just take, a step, take us a step back? What was it that prompted Marisol Rosales to, to have that, that opportunity? Well, I think part of it was the whole equity initiative that this chancellor promoted when he came here, that he recognized that there were racial disparities within the New York City public school system and that he was going to be the champion to, to, to break down some of those barriers and really bring about change. 
Um, what I think has happened is that this particular issue is entrenched in our system so deeply that he just sort of touched the surface. And so he began to put leaders in place who was willing to challenge us. Um, and so Marisol really thought it was important to get parents in the room with education leaders, parent leaders in the room with education leaders to begin to unravel this racing if we were going to really start to do the work on the ground. Um, and Marisol is the executive superintendent just for Manhattan, right? Right, just for Manhattan, just six districts in Manhattan. And so all of us were invited, the president at the time of the CEC, and then some of our CEC members, along with um, superintendents and a few of the DOE central staff, and, and I think it was a few other principals or assistant principals or people who worked in schools. But what was, what was nice about it, it was a, a, a different array of people. It was Black, Latinx, white, Asian. It was a group of us from all different races. And so to be in a space like that, you know, at first I was a little uncomfortable, but, you know, I have a lifestyle where whatever I'm going through or learning academically, I usually have to have an experiential experience to really for it to impact me. And the second day of that experience, on my way to the workshop, I encountered a white racist man on the train. And he called me a few names and said a few things. Um, and I was so angry. And when we got to the second day of the class and the instructor asked us to check in and I kind of shared, and she made me process what I was feeling and what sort of came up was this feeling of being tired of always having to be on the defense. I can remember what I said and it made me cry in that, that moment. Um, I said, you know, I said, you know, she said, what are you feeling? I said, I'm very angry. I said, because it is my ancestors who washed, cleaned, cooked, took care of, brought value to white Americans in this country and they don't even see us as a person. And they want to make it, want to make us out as though we're terrible and bad. But you ate from our tables. We washed your clothes. We took care of your kids. We took care of your home. How could you let someone be that intimate in your house, in your space, but you don't see them as a person? And the room just went like silent. <laughs> and I began to cry. Um, and she said, what is the crime? I said, because you just, I'm just, my mother did this. My grandmother did this, and now I'm doing it. I'm fighting the same causes they fought. Emmett Till was my mother's George Floyd. George Floyd is now my kid's Emmett Till. You know, for us, when I was growing up, Amadio Diallo was, was, was the young man that was killed during my time growing up young. Um, it, it's just a array of people, and it's just the same thing over and over. And I think... We have to begin to educate our kids about how we see people and how those things are entrenched in us. Um, and I think part of the struggle when I look at the Department of Education is that our teachers are not really equipped to do that. Courageous Conversations is, is a great workshop, but it's not something that all teachers have exposure to. So what do you think was her... So you told the one story about your son's experience and being shut down. And then you told a similar story about your own experience and just being given the space to talk about it. 
yet I wonder if, if being given the space to talk about it while better than being shut down, I mean, does that still leave you feeling like something is missing because? But one of the things that happened was I had an aha moment in that because I realized for the first time why race is such a hard topic. Because for the person of color, it is the anger and frustration that r racism has done to you and abused you or abused those that look like you. So you're angry as hell. And when you're angry in those emotions, it's very hard to really think clearly. And for the Caucasian person who has been the a person who has perpetuated the violence, the guilt, the shame, right? We know that all person, all white people are not racist or, or have not actually did racist things to people, but because there's still benefit from what racism has done in this country, the guilt and the shame keeps them away from the conversation. So the anger and fear keeps us away from the conversation and the guilt and the shame keeps them away from the conversation. So then it's just this awkward place in the middle where we never really get to talk about how do we resolve it. And if you're an educator, how are you going to teach? Whether you're black or white or Asian or Latinx, how are you going to teach kids that black lives matter when everything around them says it doesn't? And what, what examples you're going to give them to help them know that it matters. And I don't know if we, you know, if the school system that we have currently in New York City is able to do, especially when we're so segregated, where white supremacy is really just living and thriving in the Department of Education. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think these situations like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, they're reminders that there's an issue here that needs to be resolved. That society in this country called America, we have an issue that we have to figure out how we're gonna resolve. Because every time someone gets gunned down, I, you know, at least for me, you know, even though they say more white people are killed by police officers, that's what someone said on the news. More white people are killed I, by police officers, but they're killed in situations where they're like actually like brandishing a gun against a police officer, not in situations like we've seen with, with George Floyd or uh, Jacob Blake or Amadou Diallo, right? Like that doesn't, as far as I'm aware, happen to white people. Right. And, you know, in being in that room, you know, with these educators, you could see young, you know, young people were very uncomfortable. Um, and at times it felt like the persons in color in the room had to always, we were the ones talking the most. We were the ones sharing the most. White people didn't share much in that conversation. And when there were, where there were places, what I appreciated about the instructor was she caught, kind of called them to task. It said, you know what, you're not talking up. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? You know, what are you going to do with, you know, what you're feeling and what you're thinking? And I think that is the part that has to happen. If we're going to bring about any change or, or be able to teach our kids how to be better for that next generation, the people who are educating them have to be willing to talk about their uncomfortability in dealing with race. Because as long as there are benefits to racism and, and, and ways to cut and skate corners, you're going to keep seeing these things. Right, because you know, you would think after George Floyd, this would kind of stop, but 
we, we didn't have three or four more incidents. And I think that's the part I think, I'm just worried that, that this movement or this awakening, I call it, about race in this country doesn't become another label that we put on, you know, Black Lives Matter and it just becomes a t-shirt or a monument or a staple, right? You know, my mother used to have a saying, she said, you know, white people love to have us on their walls, on their, on their street corners, on their uh, statues. They just don't want to deal with us as people. Um, and I didn't understand that until I got older, but you know, they'll love having women and put a statue up about her, but they don't want to put on a dollar bill. You know, you know that was a big problem. You know, so it's you, you read that um, Noliwe Rook's book. I think it was in there that she had that saying, I'd never heard this before, um, that in the, in the South, they don't care how close you get so long as you don't get powerful. And in the North, they don't care how powerful you get so long as you don't get close. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, it's hard for me to, to wrap my head exactly around what I can do about, you know, police murdering people, although I have a few ideas. But it's easier for me to wrap my head around the way white supremacy shows up in, in schools, places that I, I go and that my kids go every day. And you talked about segregation and, and you talked about, you know, teacher preparation implicitly, right? Um, it, it really, you know, it's hard to... Go ahead. Is how do I get people of color to value and want to push the agenda of culturally responsive curriculum to educate black kids about their blackness and why their blackness matters? Because when I look at a district like ours, where, you know, I was a part of the equity team when it started. I mean, I can think back to my first year on the council when, you know, one of our former members. Um, Quentin Fields. He was culturally responsive curriculum, culturally responsive curriculum. And I was like, what is culturally responsive curriculum? Um, and he was pushing that agenda and educating us about what it was. But in a district like ours, where most of the educators in our district school are persons of color, we don't even have, we haven't even touched the iceberg about how we're going to teach a predominantly black and brown district who's ran by predominantly black and brown people about why their blackness matters. We are like a snail at this. Three or four years in and we still haven't gotten there. There are a few schools in our district that do it extremely well, but they are anomalies. And that shouldn't be the case. But that's, that's how entrenched white supremacy is in the system and how you know, when Carranza came in with this notion of an equity team and, you know, I think the whole concept was to have that, a team of people in a district work together to see how they were going to resolve their issues around desegregating the schools in their district. And I can remember having a conversation and a meeting with him and I said, well, what is desegregation going to look like in District 5 when most of the schools are black and brown? Either, either we're busting black and brown kids out of the district or we busting white kids and Asian kids to the district. And I just felt like, wow, the segregation has something to do with equity. It had all, with race. It had a lot to do with classism and, and socioeconomics too. Because when I looked at the schools in my district that are poorly performing, it is no way 
that you can expect parents to put their kids in failing schools. The kids that are in those failing schools, their parents are trying to get out. That's why in our district, so many children are in charter schools because those parents are looking for a different, different option. But for whatever reason, race and classism, they're sort of married in this country. And, you know, they live together in some kind of way. And so I think I'm just baffled and struggling to get a better understanding of why our educators in our district who look like these children are not more enthusiastic and more vigilant about getting that curriculum in those buildings. Yeah, I mean, I would push back first a little bit on the idea that we have to have busing to have more integration because, you know, for the I, I, white for the white kids who are in our district, they all go to a handful of schools and we have plenty, you know, we have a lot of segregation between black and Latinx students. So, you know, I think that there's a lot that we could do to integrate without anyone having to, to come or go. I think to your question about, um, about why has it been such a struggle to get um, more movement on culturally responsive education, I mean, to me, it goes to show that it's not so much about hearts and minds, that I suspect that, that everyone in their heart would like to do it. And that part, part of what's holding them back is exactly what you said, right? The, the anger and the shame. Um, but I think also that there are a lot of built-in incentives in the DOE for them not to do it, right? So Carranza said that he wanted to focus on equity, but he also said, that he wanted to test kids like three or four times a year, right? And that puts a different kind of pressure on teachers and sends a different kind of message about what's important. Right. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, all these things are sort of tied together, but it's also important to know that, you know, when we talk about the issues we see around the country or even in our communities and districts around blackness and this sense of anti-blackness where everyone, you know, it's just sort of posing or just hostile toward Black people. When you, when you speak up, you know, the stereotypes, you're the angry Black woman when you call people out and want to hold people accountable. Um, but when you're passive and allow them to do the wrong, then you become an ally for them. And, and that, for me, is a struggle because someone has to speak truth to power if we're going to have any change. And just when you think about the, you know, the, the RNC convention, the, the Republican National Convention, the way... You know, that lady got up and said, America is not racist. My thought was like, well, what America are you living in? Are we living in two different Americas? But what I realized was she, her mindset is the mindset of a lot of people around the country and people right here in our school system mm -hmm. who are teaching our kids every day, doing the work with our kids every day. Um, and they believe that. You know, they believe those things that, you know, the first night one of the speakers got up and said that the protesters were these vigilantes, that they didn't contribute nothing. And I remember jumping up like, what? I can't believe you, know, you watched it. <laughs> yeah. But my 85-year-old mentor, who is a civil rights leader, said to me a few years ago, we were driving by, and there was a bunch of guys hanging on the corner. And she said to me in the car, my other uh, classmate was saying, all those boys do is hang out on the corner. You know, you know, that, you know I, I just hate to see our black boys hanging out on the corner with their pants hanging down or they're just socializing. And, and she said, girl, leave the boys alone. Their ancestors died 
So if they want to stand on the corner all night long, people have already died and paid for them to be on that corner. So mm-hmm. leave them alone. And it didn't hit me the later what she was saying, that there were people who already fought the fight, did the work, and yeah, they may be a little displaced and lost in the moment, but, but them standing on the corner doesn't take away their value. That they have value too. And, and, and for me, that's the part of it that I struggle most with. This notion that this hostility toward blackness, but every time you look, everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we possess as people of color, every other group wants to capitalize off of, right? And so I often mm-hmm. say, well, why do you want it? Why do you want it <laughs> so much? And so it's important. It is very important that that's taught in the school, teaching our kids the importance of blackness. I think of my son who is in um, high school now. He went to a charter school. And I took him out of that charter school because culturally they was not teaching him anything. He, by the time he got to sixth grade, he started to hate his blackness because everything in that school, most of the teachers being Caucasian, most of the uh, you know information they shared. I remember him coming home one day saying, "Mom, why do we gotta always talk about slavery in February? Is that all black people did?" I'm so sick of hearing about Martin Luther King. And it was in my, at, at that point, I realized like, oh my God, they're not teaching them about the, the, the wonderful or the good things that black people contributed. They're just learning about atrocities and, and, and slavery and how black people were in a subservient position and taken advantage of all these years. And it, that's a very depressing thing to look at. And so it is important that not only parents, but educators understand that you have to figure out a way to help people understand that being anti-black, you can be a person that's black and be anti-black. It's not really about color. It's about the whole mindset of how you see a group of people. You can, you can have people that look just like you and be a person of color and they can, they can have more white supremacist behavior than a, a, a white person. And those are the individuals that I think are most detrimental to this, this struggle. When you think about that person who's a teacher in our district, or maybe more than one person who looks at those kids on the corner and thinks they shouldn't be doing that, doesn't see the value in them just living their lives, do you think that, have, that if, if those people have the opportunity to be in those courageous conversations, that that can be the agent for change in our district? Or do you think, do you think those teachers maybe just have to go? No, I think everybody is salvageable, as my mother would say. There's hope for everybody. I'm a Christian, so I'm going to believe that it's the worst of them there hope, there's hope for. So I think all teachers who have decided to take on that profession, if they're serious about it, yeah, they, yes, they can definitely be educated. But the one thing is, is not only just learning the information to regurgitate it, but you have to actually experience it and understand what you're saying. Because, you know, we often make this thing a black and white thing. And I sometimes, as I've gotten older, I realize it's just not really about black and white. Because I have, I have people who look just like me, who are women of color, who have committed more racist and white supremacist atrocities against me than white people. They live in my community, they ate at my table, they hang out with you, and they, they say they can be the most damning people to, to children of color. 
whether they be in a classroom or whether they be on a corner. And so I think culturally, we have to really work on that. So we're going to have lots more conversations about this, right? I'm definitely, I'm hoping that we can get somebody to come in and really talk a little more in depth, who is an expert in actually doing the work in the classroom and curriculum and how do we get that. Um, And maybe we can see if we can, I'm going to reach out to maybe a principal in our district who's doing the work and see if she will be able to come share with us and talk about how she helps to promote Blackness and the beauty of it among her students and give them pride and hope in it for how would she work with her teachers, right? To it's a, yeah, and it's really, it's a testament to what you were just saying that I know exactly which, which principle you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. That there's not, not 10 of them. No, not in our district. If we have one, we do have one or maybe two, but I mean, we don't have a slew of them. And I think that's, that's the sad part about this. You know, and that's a, a hope that, you know, I'm hoping it'll change. I think Karanza's initiative to want to bring equity and excellence into a situation, you know, was great. But I think he really did not look at how entrenched white supremacy is within this Department of Education system and how the perpetuators of that white supremacy are persons of color at times and their actions, the things they do, the things they don't say or, or, or do say. And so everyone is going to have to be worked on, not just white people who have to take responsibility. What do you think? Any <laughs> thoughts, Anna? Yeah, I'm with you all the way. I think uh, for me, it's less about changing hearts and minds and more about changing the system, changing the incentives. I think that we have to do that work. And then once we do that work, we're going to have to see that we're going to have to make big changes into how we hire teachers, how we promote teachers, who gets money for what. I think that those are the changes that I'm looking forward to seeing. Um, And we'll be talking about all of that in future episodes. So everyone should definitely check out our website, wakeuptowhatmatters.blogspot.com and um, subscribe and look for new episodes. Thanks for joining us tonight. We look forward to hearing from you guys. Please email us any thoughts or comments as we still tackle this issue. Wake up to what matters at gmail.com. We'd love to talk with you. Love your comments. Be blessed. Good night. Good night.